how can we learn to speak the language of the earth and cultivate our intuitive intelligence? Tiyokasin Ghost Horse is a member of the Cheyenne River Lakota Nation of South Dakota and has a long history with indigenous activism and advocacy. Tiyokasin is the founder, host, and executive producer of First Voices Radio, formerly known as First Voices Indigenous Radio, for the past 31 years in New York City. In 2016, he received a nomination for the Nobel Peace Prize from the International Institute of Peace Studies and Global Philosophy. Among his many recognitions and accolades, Tiokasen also was recently nominated for the 2020 American for the Arts Johnson Fellowship for Artists Transforming Communities Award. Tiokasen currently professes at the Union Theological Society. Tiokasen Ghost Horse, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you very much, Mia. There are so many urgent issues facing the world. Where do we begin? Before we get into it, just tell us what we were like as a young boy. Were you always a talker, always a listener? Yeah, I have to say I was born at a time when it was against the law to be born naturally. We had to go to the Western hospitals. And at this time, there was no phone, no car. We lived in a log cabin, my parents, and they lived with that, I would say, abundance because they had their own gardens. There was a running river right there, but they had no electricity either. There's no such thing as Wi-Fi, of course. So what they did is, because it was against the law for children to be born naturally, my father and my grandfather were out hunting on horses. My grandmother and my older brother were home in the log cabin, and my mother was, of course, ready to bear a child to be born, right? And her water broke, and she lived three miles from the hospital. And since my grandfather and father were out hunting, there was no car. So she waddled. She walked three miles to the hospital. And on the way, she said to hold on, hold on, hold on. Finally, she got to the hospital and my father arrived just in time on horse. And there I am. But the lesson that I want to say here that I was taught from that point of understanding I was going to be born to actually being born is my mother saying, hold on, hold on. That meant I had the virtue of patience. So that's how, as a child, I was always patient to watch clouds go by the river, listen to the rivers, because they were actually listening to me, you know, asking me on a constant basis, what do you need? What do you need? You need air? Do you need food? Do you need water? Do you need warmth? What do you need? So it was always caring for me. And I was aware of that. Instead of me going to nature and listening, right, what we're told anthropocentrically is that We humans can listen to nature, but not if we don't know that nature is already listening to us and providing that ability to listen, see? So it all goes back to where Earth is alive and to be patient enough for you to understand and that she is actually having patience enough for you to to understand. That's a lot of words, but basically that's how I was very curious as a boy, wanting to, in the only way, that could satisfy my curiosity is by understanding things a little different coming from the culture that I come from. That's what I want to say all through the little boy until I qualified to speak as an adult. And once I was able to do that, then I took all my experience of those decades of growing up. I say decades of growing up because I don't think a human being is totally grown up until they realize where they're at in consciousness and in presence and and in this moment. That's the energy of evolving. So that's how I was growing up. And this 
it allows me to speak from that that heart of that little boy and yet use words that are foreign to me in this English and try to convey what I was feeling then and throughout my life. So there you go, Mia. Thank you. Yes. I wonder what these conversations that you have with the water, you're a musician, and I've been listening to some of your music. And you know, it's mysterious to me where it comes from because you don't you don't read music, you feel I, music. Very, very much so. I'm going to use a Greek philosopher, Pythagoras, said all matter is only music solidified. And so if everything is in frequency, then that would be the beginning of hearing, not just with your physical ears, but your frequency that you're tuned into in it. You don't do a new age you know, tuning fork. You don't do one of those things because if earth is already in tune, then it's up to us to be in tune with earth, in a rhythm with earth. Let's listen to some of your music. This is Spatial Moon from the album Somewhere in There. So when music comes, it depends on who is in the audience. And that's where the music comes from, because we can understand these notes as humans that come from nature. And how did the sound come? Through the wind. That's nature. It's intelligent. And the moisture that keeps, you know, the breath moving is also a consciousness and an intelligence. So this is how the music comes. For me, there is not a need to read music to hear it and listen to it. If we read it, then it becomes very more or less myopic and standardized that this is the only type of music that exists and what only sounds good and pleasant to the human ear may not be, you know, pleasant to another form of being out there. Maybe the trees prefer another sound. I don't know. Yes, I would love to know how they hear. I had an interesting conversation with the photographer, Ralph Gibson, who I admire very much, but he was quoting someone. He said that humans have music and that birds make sounds. I might be misquoting him. Maybe I misunderstood it, but they don't have music. And I thought, how do you know? They make music with the flute or siotanka in my language. It means the bigger voice. And that bigger voice is universal. And if only humans make music, then that puts us on a pedestal and also um, removes us from the whole being to participate in music because we know that energy remains. Um, how do you say about energy? It, you cannot create energy. You cannot destroy energy. So when we say we only make music ourselves, it's the only frequency we understand. I'm saying that birds know what we're saying. I say this because... If you understand a bird's language and you go out and try to talk to them with your voice, they'll, they already understand it like a horse can scan your whole body and know instantly what type of person you are. If you're afraid, if you, this is what plants do also, you know, but they've been here so long as ancestors that they understand your vibration being young, fearful, maybe a little too egotistical as humans. And that is doing ourselves a disservice, but is also disrespectful to nature. 
find this so interesting as you have spoken of the Lakota language. I try to understand what it would be like to move through the world, if you describe, without nouns and domination and this power play. I tried it. I couldn't even for an hour speak in English with just verbs. So I guess the question is that how do I use language to express myself more or less? I keep remembering these things as I get older, as I always re oh, remember this person said this and this, it's how that memory of what they said didn't really affect your so-called knowledge information center called your brain. But when, th when they would say something when I was young, my heart seemed to remember that. It was a heart memory. When I think about that, they said Lakota can only come from the heart because our language, as my 89-year-old mother would say, you cannot speak Lakota without intuition. And so this is where, where does music come from? What does language come from? We, we can never journey to the heart because if we come from there, then it's journeying always and saying things and seeing things from the heart. Because what makes up your heart is that which is all around us, non-human. You see, it's only the head that thinks that we have these these things possessively but when you're hearing with the heart and you come from the heart you know that it has to be intuitive with all other life forms with earth and that's the languages that we are getting further and further away from is not and actually misunderstanding earth that's why there's a biophobic language we're afraid to speak about for and with earth because we've lost that language of listening because Listening is a language without ever having to express it through, you know, through with voice. Besides your music and your listening, talking process with the First Nations Indigenous Radio, uh, what are some of those other rituals that you center yourself with, how you connect yourself to the earth? Yeah, we don't have the concept of rituals. It's more ceremony because the language is one of describing energy and then the motion of the energy. So you are always in ceremony when you're cognizant, when you're conscious of it, when you're out of your conscience, am I doing a wrong or right thing, the egotistical mind, if you're in consciousness with it. So when it's rituals, it's like at nine o'clock on Sunday morning, or it's the same movement of, you know, objects. But ceremony, the way I was shown and taught is that ceremony could happen out right outside your door. It could happen on a mountaintop. It could happen in the bathtub. It could happen anywhere because it's having to do with energy and the protocol of energy that calls upon you to pay attention to that, to recognize that energy. What we do in the West is, not in Lakota, but what we do in the West is try to own that energy, become shamans, become ownership of energy. And as I said, it cannot be created or destroyed neither can it be possessed. You see, you can guide energy, but you cannot, if you're away from that language and you're only in possessive language, there is a distancing of that energy and you're just, you might as well just be doing rituals. And that's why we do so many rituals. It becomes very empty. So it's more like ceremony, being able to walk in among the forest and not hear your feet, you know, crinkle a leaf and knowing these ways of respect, then you receive that back from, from Earth, also respecting you. And try to stay away from anthropocentrism, 
because that's I think if if Earth had worries that would as children, Earth would be worried that humans have anthropocentrism. Yes, we have to remind ourselves of our smallness and the vastness. And excuse me for using the word ritual. Sometimes it's the feeling of the words. Another part of what you're saying is that language really shades our thinking. At the same time, language, man-made language, doesn't matter. It's the tone underneath it. We're thinking a lot now about AI and the new technologies and the future of humanity and the future of Earth. It's not, of course, an anthropocentric, I just use that, where technologists want to narrow, defining who we are to we're just a set of data points. And from what you say and what I understand is that, you know, what you cannot see is the more most essential part of us, not the data, not this collection of data and numbers. Yes, very good. Thank you. I used to work with computers in my earlier life, and I began to see the process of separation because of technology and just forms of government that are really based on how much you can own and manipulate technology. There's technocracy out there now, and whoever can afford technology, in a sense, more availability to it are the ones who are the ruling class. Even us, when we own this electronics we don't understand that maybe we're a smaller percent of the rest of the world who doesn't have this availability or accessibility. So when it comes to AI, understanding artificial intelligence, I understand it, that is made merely from human minds and it's mechanical. And it will not include this one thing that is totally free, that cannot be harnessed or changed. Is There's no such thing as artificial intuition. Intuition is what this technology, what the concepts that come on the ships back in 1492 to Turtle Island to get us away from the consciousness of relationship with Earth. And that relationship and that consciousness is intuition. So intuition is the language that we can't see, we can't package it, we can't gift it, we can't own it. That's what this conscience in the West with dogma and materialism, tries to get us away from that understanding much more than what we feel is only materialism and the controlling of it through certain forms and concepts like domination, which we don't have in our language. There's no concept or word for domination. We need this relational language in order to understand intuition, which all life is, not just a human being. When you talk about intuition, I, I think of the image of the murmuration of starlings in the sky. There could be a million of them there in this beautiful dance, and they, they never once touch, and they all are of one the same mind. Isn't that so? Do you also look at that? It's just mesmerizing. It's like entertainment. It's like all the words that you can possibly come up with in English. It's they're of one mind which is a very anthropocentric way of other of one mind and its beauty and it performing for us how lucky we are. Basically, what that would say to us is it's their rhythm. I'm drinking a juice here, a cleansing juice. What are they doing with the sky? They're cleansing it by being more pure to who they are. They're performing who they are because you think about birds and how they go through the sky and move and morph. It's the energy. They're tuned in through the earth. On the Mahagopta, we say is that they, they have uploaded from the earth, to speak in. The energy, the consciousness, they've uploaded into their being, 
not from the sky. We forget that the earth is uploading all this energy and intelligence into them so that they can fly. And what they're doing is only mirroring the earth. Now, these thoughts are so out of the box in the Western conventional wisdom, as they call it, that it sounds science fiction-y or sounds like something that science cannot control. Therefore, it is outside of our human understanding why they do that, because science cannot prove why they do that. So everything is a guess. So what's the best thing to understand that even more? Intuition. And if we're flowing with that intuition, we can imagine that is also within us, within that tree. Is it energy? Yes, it is. Not to be non-subjective or non-objective in concepts, but that's something that we can't own. We can't say birds fly this way unless we interrupt it with someone shoots a bullet at it. They may get hit, they may not, but it's the action that we are perceiving is that I want to control that either by destroying it or being thinking that we're creating it and we should just leave it alone and let that energy be. I always, we have a lot of heaviness in the world right now and talking about domination and occupation and what's happening in Gaza or not to mention Ukraine. What are your reflections on this? Well, I really don't have much on reflections like that because I'm not there. Everything is controlled through media. It's like familiar with what's going on there as well as here. There is a lot of misinformation and distortion. As a native from Turtle Island, that happens to us constantly. And it's probably because of the deeper understanding peoples have with Earth, their relationship, not their connection, their relationship with the Earth. Connection is a technical thing that you can make a phone call connected. Their relationship with Earth is, is so ingrained, especially in indigenous peoples, that it can't be removed, especially because if you're in contact with the land, the land knows you, the land remembers you. When you're a colonist or, or whatever, you're, you don't remember home. You want to forget it because that's painful. And so it comes out in waves of grief. And this is what we as a human race, the human species are suffering is because a large part of the world is not paying attention, acknowledging, recognizing the grief. We're just only thinking about ourselves as, as a special species, you see. And we want to say, well, see, the tigers kill each other. The savage animals kill each other. That's our perception because maybe that's what we're not supposed to do. We say human beings aren't meant to kill each other. Then other people say, well, why is it happening then? So that disconnection from land, that relationship, and if you have relationship with land, it teaches you not to kill, but to only take what you need and then have respect and great recognition of where that life came from. And that seems so primitive in modern, civilized, modernity thought. But when you think about it, that's what they're reaching for. It was AI, with all the military might, the technology they have, that's what they're reaching for. Something that's totally free. Those who are in control and manipulating that kind of world, that technology world, that technocracy, don't want us to understand where that consciousness that makes the birds move that maybe we as a species are, we've been removed from Earth now, at least for Lakota, the last 160 years, because they've, they pushed us off our lands. Some of us are diasporic in a way, and we're forgetting our languages, being forced at first, and now we're, we're just readily accepting the Western way. That is killing our culture. 
or languages are seem to be dying, but there is a resurgent here and there. In the general population of native people, there's less of their original languages being spoken now because religions and sciences and governments from the West or Europe and other countries have come here and overlaid the vibrations of this land. I think it's that, again, the separation from earth. And we don't know what to say because that makes us silence. It's a short conversation. We don't want to talk about it because we're biophobic. We'd rather talk about, you know, how much money we have going to Mars and because we didn't like what where we've been. So here we are. Exactly. We will use up all the resources of this planet and maybe find a way to survive on another one. It seems such nonsense. I know you do a lot of outreach with schools and you teach as a guest lecturer at Yale and also young children. Just tell us a little bit about the educational outreach. I imagine it must be a wonderful experience. I tried to go through um, the, the history that I know of and the, the studies that I have researched from where educational processes started. and usually. When I say young, we're talking in college age or, or more. I, I just finished a semester at Union Theological Seminary in New York, and graduate and postgrad students, they either were angry or sad or just, you know, in shock that they have never heard through the whole semester after years of study that they've never heard the way that the native history as we know it. We've always been overrun with Western historical domination as they see it, that they came here for benevolence. They were brought us civilization. They brought us cars and tech, all these things. It was the ships that came while we stood on the shore, watching the ships come, welcoming, abundance giving. And then they came and they took what we offered, but they took more. And that's where we're at. And now we're seeing a whole abandonment of spirit, and put into the ideas of a dogmatic soul. When I approach these peoples in these educational institutions, I often come with those two perspectives, knowing that Native people also are forgetting our own perspective and mimicking Western educational process, cultural etymology and the language etymology, English, and where does education come from? Scholars and, you know, whatever. But the etymology of the word education, what does it mean? So it means to adduce or seduce. And one dictionary I saw before 1940 says, of course, to adduce or seduce. But it also says, in quotes, it says, to draw out or lead away from, I get this, to lead away from spirit. And what has it done? Replace, draw out or lead away from spirit. What's done is we replace it with information and knowledge, and that's controlled by domination. Here's how. So schools started out in the Catholic churches because they drew the monks away when they were boys to read and script and to keep this educational process moving. They were away from nature and only of men's minds. And so this is how it's been proceeding since then. It's a controlled educational where you're instructed mechanically to get the right answer, where in Native is that we are shown the possibilities and we're able to choose freely about what we're shown. We were never told to, to do this or say that. or We were shown because it was a living and is a living language. 
learning is a living, it's not a stagnant informational data bank. So this is how education is to me and how I view it and how I try to explain it to college age and grad and post-grad. I wanted to ask you, which relates to what we were just talking about in terms of education and the shifts in language. You mentioned that a lot of language today, especially in English, is very biophobic. It doesn't really center around the environment. What are some changes or things you suggest for people to start doing to make language shift to a more environmentally conscious vocabulary? Yeah, thank you for that. It becomes one of Certain awareness, and I say that is because during the late 1800s into the early 1900s, there was a thing called industrial civilization, industrial revolution, and it came up with machines. It had to have machine language, and IBM was here during a civil war, and they kept accounting of the soldiers, and they learned how to count, and then you combine that with machines, and it becomes a computer. Information and knowledge as it is often controlled. So we get to a certain stage in the Western society, I'd never call it a culture, but a society trying to figure out its birth and how to become mature, whatever it's doing. It slowed down natural relationships. It took us out of the land, put us into factories, put us into institutions where you can learn a trade. It kept giving you jobs that had nothing to do with earth. And so if you're living in you're working in this box called a factory and even farming, the ideas of farming is foreign and becoming less and less. I think that when the technical language came out, we dropped another natural umbilical cord to earth with earth. And so we severed that relationship. So you can see this gradual severing of relationships to earth with earth that now we have to have retreats. We have to learn empathy again. We have to we do all these westernized versions of piecing ourselves back together. And as indigenous folks, we're, we're getting that way now. But a lot of traditional people don't need that. We don't need environmental movements. We, wild earth is a foreign concept. There's a lot of words that organizations use to rationalize why we need to teach how to be human being. So you see technology, industrial machine age, taught us this language of disconnection, taught us things like plug-in, all these words that came along to fill that information that could be controlled by authority. Now, in the Western process, it takes 12 years, Melanie, first grade to 12th grade, to learn how to become reflexive to authority. John Gatto, who won the New York State Teacher of the Year Award in 2008, upon his retirement, specifically said what I just paraphrased, it takes 12 years to learn how to become reflexive to authority. And who is the authority? Who is controlling information? Who is controlling education? Who is controlling knowledge? And now they want to control wisdom. And all wisdom means is common sense. So you go through the masses. Is there common sense? When you have young people, because of the education process and other breakdowns in society, young people for the last 20 years now killing themselves killing, going into schools, massacring. These are the consequences that have taken us away from our relational value and educational processes that teach, she shows us. Obviously, we don't see her. And we have lawns, we have our backyards, and we don't even look up at the sky anymore. So all this other natural education process is gone until you take a weekend to go hiking because you can afford to. But there are people 
who don't want to leave that land that education has taught you. We need that land to build our computers, our cars, our buildings, our books. It's all about extracting what's left. And I may be misquoting this, but I spoke at Rockefeller University a few weeks ago, and I think I heard one of the scientists there who worked with the world at large said that of the wildlife left on the planet is only 6% now, yet we are still plugging along with this way of controlling. So out of that educational process comes environmental protection for endangered species. There's many guises you can speak to the graduates and graduate students and without having to unload grief on them, because I think that's what we're all feeling is angst, grief, and we try to take care of it with modern day psychologies. And it's worth something to a point. Does it address anthropocentrism? Because psychology seems to be only about the human mind. And, and yet it's the earth that is actually where we need to get these earth adversities out there. Go out to earth and let earth study you instead of us studying earth, right? Because we have not adapted to earth. She needs us to do that. Instead, we've tried to adapt earth to our needs which is always an extraction, take away, earth will always be here. And I think that's what education has brought us to. Now we're in this consequence and angst of we may not have a future because earth won't exist because of the technology. So this is part of the education. Great yeah. question. Long answer. No, it's important. And another one of those statistics that is just mind-blowing is that I believe 80% of the Earth's biodiversity is stewarded by Indigenous peoples. I mean, and Indigenous peoples is such a small percentage of the world's population without all the aid of massive archiving technologies and just by the common sense. But yeah. I love to see regenerative agricultural movement as well is just coming around to bring that into the future so that maybe we can all have an indigenous relationship with the earth. That's a great suggestion. But I'd have to also ask myself this question. What does it mean to be regenerative? And, and do you have languages with the songs and the cultures that are much older than English or any European language? It's unproven yet because we have to prove things to the Western standardized educational process that we are real still to this day. And we received freedom of religion in 1978 saying that we could pray because these languages of, of consciousness, like and I said earlier, that we cannot speak Lakota without intuition. So regeneration of these languages is important. But if these languages have been here for that long, then... Why aren't we proposing that, that we could be shown by Native people the songs without them becoming a religion? The songs are the ones that regenerate the earth. And you say prayer. We don't have a word for prayer in Lakota. It's Wolchekia, which means to acknowledge relationship. You see, so we're not always asking for ourselves as if we had the scarcity or we're lacking. But understanding a lacking of, because earth is nothing but abundant. She's always giving life. Ancient as it is abundant, our planet shares a special bond with us in which it generously provides as we nurture. The people of the Cheyenne River Lakota tribe of South Dakota, the indigenous nation Tio Kasingo's source belongs to, have believed in and honored this relationship of nurturing and gratitude for centuries. 
as well as many other indigenous nations. However, as the world has rapidly increased in colonization, industrialization, and materialism, Western society has made it increasingly hard, almost impossible, for anyone, especially indigenous peoples, to be able to continue this way of life. The effects of such a change have taken a terrible toll not only on our society and language, but our planet as well. However, there can be steps toward progress, and Teokas and Ghost Horse suggest that one of the very first could be with our language. I often feel uncomfortable, even out of tune, when I'm out in a wooded area or a garden. It can be a bit hard for me to express myself properly as well, and this biophobia and lack of confidence has honestly led me to feel very isolated and disconnected at times. It was almost liberating for me to hear about the Lakota language from Teokasin. I was fascinated by a language where intuition weighs more than words, where relationships are what decide what you say and to whom. This dialect of respected nature and collectivity was worlds different to the commercial lexicon I'm familiar with. The concepts of ownership, control, and materialism are completely foreign and incompatible. In a language where words rarely ever only mean the object, but relate to how their people interact with and perceive them, this respect and personal relationship with the earth is something that Teokasin strongly values and believes can be accomplished. In beginning to listen to the earth and in restoring our relationship with it, we will not only begin to heal our planet, but heal the issues that plague our society and even ourselves as well. However, as the world has rapidly increased in colonization, industrialization, and materialism, Western society has made it increasingly hard, almost impossible, for anyone, especially indigenous peoples, to be able to continue this way of life. The effects of such a change have taken a terrible toll not only on our society and language, but our planet as well. However, there can be steps toward progress, and Teokas and Ghost Horse suggest that one of the very first could be with our language. I often feel uncomfortable, even out of tune, when I'm out in a wooded area or a garden. It can be a bit hard for me to express myself properly as well, and this biophobia and lack of confidence has honestly led me to feel very isolated and disconnected at times. It was almost liberating for me to hear about the Lakota language from Teokasin. I was fascinated by a language where intuition weighs more than words, where relationships are what decide what you say and to whom. This dialect of respected nature and collectivity was worlds different to the commercial lexicon I'm familiar with. The concepts of ownership, control, and materialism are completely foreign and incompatible. In a language where words rarely ever only mean the object, but relate to how their people interact with and perceive them, this respect and personal relationship with the earth is something that Teokasin strongly values and believes can be accomplished. In beginning to listen to the earth and in restoring our relationship with it, we will not only begin to heal our planet, but heal the issues that plague our society and even ourselves as well. Now back to the interview. And so the songs of regeneration, you can make a plant grow with those songs that were sung 
and still sung here. They're sort of singing these songs in the Western Hemisphere, deep in the jungle, on reservations north in Canada. These songs, probably 40, 50, 60,000-year-old songs, and had to be honed to understand a certain plant. So you had a song for that plant or that tree, for that animal, for the way the clouds moved. You had to have songs for everything. And that was energy. So when you understood regeneration, it's not a recyclical type of thing. It's like, oh, we sleep and we, we wake up, we sleep. This is the, the cycle, the rhythm of these songs. They call it circadian, I guess. But the rhythm of these songs are also the rhythm of the earth. That's why we usually use drums to mimic the heartbeat. And that has been distorted by Americans, pretty much. They're trying to remember where they come from. And, and yet it comes out in dogmatic rituals. And it becomes the I, the me, the my, the mine, the ours. Which words originally, from what I'm told, Lakota didn't have these words. I, me, my, mine, and ours which makes it very difficult to understand. To me, it makes it easier to understand a relationship if you don't have those words. Can I say then, if they don't have those words, was it one of also speaking in gesture, just like the non-human animals or the animates, as you call them? Yeah, we say mitakoi oyasi. We don't really mean all my relations. So it's, no, we're, we're talking about what you can formulate into E equals MC squared and beyond, that it's beyond what you see. And that energy you don't see with these eyes, which only see a certain range of color and light refraction, is that we are also understanding our body is, you would say, people would say, the brain. There is no disconnection. And so are we fully understanding or do we have full spectrum perspective of what tools of the earth really mean? Like a bird we think has no intelligence. It just flies here and flies there. Right? But we also understand that that bird is also using the tools of the earth correctly, properly. When what's that mean? Well, that's what magis do. Magi is not a genie. Magi means one who uses the tools of the earth properly. And, and what are they doing? The magi are making magic. What does a human do? They're magicians. They're fooling themselves as well as everything around them, creating illusion. They really don't have magic anymore because they're not behaving as magi. Now, if you go deeper into indigenous peoples, and you can see the modernity and then so-called primitive people, you don't need to be in contact in relationship and in communication, have a language with all other life that technology is taking us away from because we feel like we're elite to anything having to do with Earth. That's why we want to go to a dead planet called Mars. So they're about controlling, getting you and all of us away from being magi is how to use tools of the earth properly. We should not abuse water, the air, the land, the food, anything. So when it comes to animacy, I think it's a Western term also. And so we get away from the Western terms. We start seeing that, oh, we are becoming earth as we're born into this physical dimension. We are becoming earth. And then as we are living during this time we're alive, we are becoming earth. And when we are finished with this body, we are becoming earth. So regenerative is something else, not just a, how do you say, a reincarnation. It's so fascinating what you're saying. You know, I wonder, 
there's become an awareness of this term in Western science medicine, calling people autistic. It occurs to me sometimes in across many indigenous cultures, there is something that you can express yourself in words or you don't have to express yourself. When I read the description of what people who are supposed to be autistic are, are like, maybe it's a quietness. They have all this range of symptoms. Some people are saying that they're yeah. different. But it seems to me you don't always have to say things to express your thoughts. You don't always have to say your thoughts no, out loud. Exactly. Again, it comes down to energy. If you have a language that is verbs, we're speaking in energy. And you're not required to speak so much if you're understanding things in verbs or motions in verbs. It's only nouns that we have concepts and we have to always talk about it. So we ask the question, do you know what I mean? Because you're in conflict and antagonism from what I know of English. You want people to believe you, yet you're doubting. So you ask, Am I, do, I, do you understand me? The language of incoherency. So I think what you're onto, Mia, is, again, it's energy, really. And where, where is that disconnect? And we can say it's a point, but I think we still have it. That's the encouragement. And, and that means that if we, are, if we are aware of being here rather than in the future or in the past, we have a term for it called akantu, which really means earth being from the earth being from the ancient future now. Knowing as a friend of mine would say, no, we walk along a spiral, no beginning, no ending. And we walk backwards into the future. And people are like, what do you mean? I'm saying, well, if you walk backwards into the future, and you see where you've been along that spiral, you can trust the future. Because you see where you've been, and you, it gives you confidence of spirit. Now, if you turn it around and only walk forward into the future, you're always fearful because of what you've done and what you have. You, you want to forget because we say the ancestors have gone into the future. Now, this may be confusing. Ancestors are the future because they went ahead of us. They died. Their energy was here first in the past, but now they've gone on into the future. So we follow, and this is why we listen to elders, plants, the animals, all the energy that you see out here, the rocks, they were here long before any human being came. At least we know that. So who do we listen to? These are our ancestors. Not because I'm older or they're older in this lifetime. Because if we're alive as a baby born an hour ago to the one who just passes into another dimension, then we're all the same age. Energy doesn't have age. It's always here at this moment. Maybe that's another adaptation, how to do something in the Western context, learn how to be here and listen to those indigenous peoples who've had this way long before it became a new agey thing, be here now. Because when you're here, it contains both the present, future, and the past. You're able to know that your words don't come from your brain they come from all that air, all the intelligences around us, the fire, everything. And when you're, in, you're included in that, you feel so confident that you will always be cared for because that's how Earth loves us. Earth loves you, loves everybody all the time. And we don't recognize that. I also wanted to ask you about, obviously growing up with Lakota tradition, so much of it is centered around the earth, about fostering the relationship with the earth. 
stories, songs. I mean, you know that very well. What were some growing up that you felt personally impacted you and had the most impact on fostering your own relationship with the earth? I think as I was growing up, not having the concept of time, not having the concept of money, that there was only gifting, giving. You begin to wonder when you were small, some people would come with one plate of something to a community gathering, and they would be going away with five or six plates full of food or something, you know? I always wondered that, okay, and that abundance, if everybody's abundant, then everything is always going to be abundant. Even though you don't have much, you go away with more because they take care of you that way. So growing up this way, Melanie, I think part of the abundancy would be how do we perceive that? I mentioned earlier that we are speaking from a lack of language. We got to have something. We could better buy this, buy that. We need this. It's always needing, wanting possessing. And in this country, nine-tenths of the law is possession, right? Ownership. So it's the opposite. When I was growing up, I didn't see those concepts being enacted until I got older, when I had to. And I think that would be a science fiction to a lot of people that really existed, you know, especially with the digital age that's coming on and the nanotechnology and all that. But thank you. That's a good question. I don't know if I answered it, but could be close, yeah. I guess some of those conversations you had with your elders when you were young that stay with you. Oh boy, between sitting at four years old outside of a house, a log cabin, and listening to these old Lakota men, 80s and 90s, and they were born in the 1800s. Think about that, 1800s. None of them spoke English. And you could just reach out and grab energy as a four-year-old. You know how pure you are when you're four and you're given certain perceptions. See beyond, because you're just coming from that dimensional world, you're young into this dimension, that you see the, the elders and the older people attractive to each other. Grandma takes care of the baby that's just born. So there's a relationship. When I was sitting with these elders around a drum, listening to their talk, listening to how they would start a song, sitting around a drum, and how they would sing and laugh. And there was always laughing. It's not a, at somebody else's expense. It was laughing about because the person kind of laughed at themselves, you know, and that made everybody laugh because it, it is about not taking yourself so seriously. And what, the, what stress brings on because of the colonial, that they had to make jokes. Because laughter is a healing nature of all humans. And when I, I understand it that way, that's what was conveyed, the energy of always don't take things too seriously, but know when you have to. It's like doing what's required, not what you're wishing for, is doing what's required. I think they conveyed that, that energy of doing what's required. It's... It's like, without doing anything, leave nothing undone. And so when you are young, I guess you believe in a kind of reincarnation. In a way, I don't think it's described as reincarnation because we're evolving. We're always evolving. And when we evolve enough, we can say, well, I want to go back there and check it out or whatever, because it's an energy. We don't know what after our body leaves this dimension, where it goes, because everything is guesswork. But it's what you take into that other world, this, this energy, how you treat yourself, others, life itself. And you bring that. Wouldn't you want to arrive to somebody's home 
with a gift. And that's what, when you arrive at through the other door, you want to arrive with a gift. You want to have something in it. And the qualities that my uncle would say, if you can't take it with you, why take it now? And that's materialism. It's focusing in on what energy you're going to take into that other dimension. Because imagine that you too will be four years old again, but it doesn't necessarily have to be here on earth. You have given us so much to think about. Thank you to Akashin Ghost Horse for sharing your earth mind and expanding our understanding of indigenous cultures and our relationship with Mother Earth and reminding us of our cultural responsibilities for helping us understand we are part of nature. We don't own it. We are all connected. We all live mm. on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. I'm grateful and appreciate both you, Mia and Melanie, just to let people know that I'm not a chief or shaman, a spiritual guru or medicine man, just a common human being. Which is greater still. Oh, okay. I'll take it. Thank you. You have such a healing voice and it helps clarify in these troubled times. Thank you so much. Thank you again. It's an honor to be here and be able to express, appreciate you for the questions. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Yam Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Melanie Munoz with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer on this episode were Sophie Garnier and Melanie Munoz. Songs featured on this episode are Butterfly Against the Wind and from the album Somewhere in There, Spatial Moon and Sunrise Moon composed by Tiakasin Ghost Horse and Alex Alexander. Music on this episode is courtesy of Tiakasin Ghost Horse. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.